0: I sat within a valley green I sat there with my true love My sad heart strove the two between The old love and the new love The old for her, the new that made me think of Ireland dearly. While soft the wind blew down the glade and shook the golden barley. T'was hard the woeful words to frame to break the ties that bound us. T'was harder still to bear the shame of foreign chains around us. And so I said the mountain glen I'll seek next morning early and join the brave united men while soft winds shook the barley. While sad, I kissed away her tears, my fond arms round her flinging. The foeman's shot burst on our ears from out the wildwood ringing. A bullet pierced my true-love side in life's young spring so early, and on my breast, in blood, she died while soft winds shook the barley. I bore her to the wildwood screen, and many a summer blossom I placed with branches thick and green. Above her gore-stained bosom I wept and kissed her pale, pale cheek Then rushed o'er veil vale and far a My vengeance on the foe to wreak While soft winds shook the barley But blood for blood without remorse I've ta'en at all art hollow And placed my true love's clay-cold corpse Where I full soon will follow And round her grave I wander dear Noon night and morning early With breaking heart whene'er I hear the Wind That Shakes the Barley. <laughs> Call,
1: on the Call. Call it in. It's danger
0: close.
2: Welcome everyone to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan and I'm here with my partners, Katie and Liam. And today we're here to talk about a film from director Ken Loach from 2006, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. My first time watching this and it is a very interesting film and Katie's here with our mission briefing.
3: Ireland struggled for a long time to gain its independence from the British occupiers. Generation after generation has fought tooth and nail to see things change for the better. The wind that shakes the barley is set during one of the pivotal moments of that struggle. But rather than give the audience a wide-ranging history lesson, or even a basic introduction, the film jumps right into the microcosm of two brothers and their lives as members of the IRA. Opening in 1920, Damien O'Donovan is set to become a doctor in London. But when the brutal black and tans begin to terrorize his family and village, he changes course and joins his older brother Teddy in the IRA. At first, their views align. But as the circumstances of the war change and the Irish cause slowly creeps towards some form of victory, they find themselves on opposite sides. Ken Loach is an unabashedly political filmmaker and it was a surprise to most when this film snagged the 2006 Palme d'Or, one of the top prizes in cinema. And while he laces his political opinions through this film, it is in service of talking about a perspective of the conflict that he feels is underrepresented. And most critics and viewers were receptive to what he had to offer. There were very few negative reviews, although there was much hullabaloo from the conservative pundits and tabloids of the British press and almost every positive review out of the UK still mentioned the fact that the British were certainly not as bad as all that, and that the IRA was much worse. Which I didn't see a whole lot of in other reviews. The film went on to be the most successful Irish film for years, with a budget of $8 million and a box office take of $26 million. Now, I'm going to admit that I am not at all familiar with this conflict and only passingly aware of the specifics of the incredibly long history between Ireland and Britain. I felt like I should get that out of the way, so hopefully folks are a little more forgiving the less educated participants of today's show. So how about you guys? What's your knowledge range on this?
2: Before Liam goes off about Irish history, I'm just going to join Katie in the (laughs) ranks of Basically, (laughs) other than some of my ancestors coming from Ireland and Scotland, I know very little about Irish history, so I was really pleased to see what direction this film went and what it was covering, because even just studying the basic history and getting acquainted with it is making me want to learn more about it, and it is a small part of me as well, even though I don't have connections with family in Ireland and all that, so yes, my Uh, Irish and Gaelic pronunciation is gonna be terrible, and I know just the tip of the iceberg of this historical period, but I am very interested in talking about it. Here's a little bit of the context and the history behind what's going on in this film. Uh, Thank you very much to Richard, who on very short notice, he had less than a week, turned out some very concise and very good uh, research, allowing us to have some context on what was going on here. The film starts in 1920, pretty much right in the middle of the Irish War for Independence. But going back to the to 1800, the Act of Union unites the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland to create the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Irish Republicanism was born after that, and, and other Irish nationalist groups rise over the next 100 years in opposition to the Act of Union, obviously because they want Irish independence. Now, the events that happened... Right before World War I and before what we see in this film was famously the Easter Rising of 1916, which was only a week. It happened from 24 to 30 April of 1916. It intensified revolutionary feelings, bolstered Sinn Féin during the intervening years, and led to many smaller incidences prior to the declaration of war with England. In the Irish general election of 1918, The Republican Sinn Féin party wins 70% of the Irish vote, which we hear talked about in the film later. These Irish members of parliament create their own Irish parliament, the Dáil, in January of 1919 and declare the existence of a new Irish republic. In September 1919, the British declare the Dáil an illegal assembly in Ireland, as they claim is still part of the United Kingdom. Which brings us to the time period of our film. The Irish War of Independence, also known as the Anglo-Irish War or the Tan War, went from January 1919 to July 1921 and was fought between the IRA, or the Irish Republican Army, and the British forces under the Royal Irish Constabulary, RIC. This later bolstered by auxiliaries and the black and tans, called that because of the color of their uniforms, the majority of which were former British soldiers who had fought in World War I. And we see that addressed in the film. And I'll yield the floor to Liam.
0: <laughs> okay, so I am far from, I have friends and acquaintances who have their PhDs in this shit. I am not that. Let me put it mildly. But
3: you are right 50% of the time.
0: No, I know 50% of everything. Well,
3: that's right. <laughs> Of everything. That's even better.
0: In this particular arena, I'd say I probably know closer, like 60% of everything.
3: It's pretty impressive.
0: But it it is. It is. No, it's you know, that being said, my knowledge and my perspective comes with a sharp bias Mm -hmm. that I will not even pretend to deny. And Dan, you can probably appreciate this particular dynamic because. You grew up in Italy. And so there are things that are considered Italian in America that are really like Italian American kind of things as opposed to like Italian Italian kind of things. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm an Irish American, not from Ireland.
2: Right. It's like a subculture where you understand a lot of those things, but. The hyphenated American culture is different, obviously, from the original culture.
0: Exactly. You know, it's like there are some things that I'm sure would just appall any Irish person who came over and, like, stumbles into Pittsburgh on St. Patrick's Day and sees a bunch of fucking Yablonskis just staggering around (laughs) with, like, mushroom (laughs) antennas banging together and drinking green beer. Like, you know what I mean? It's – there's – there's a completely different culture. And – there has been a kind of longstanding tradition of Irish Americans probably being a little bit more militant in their viewpoints than a lot of people who are actually from Ireland, and that is viewed in different ways. One being that like, when the IRA needed to raise money or get guns, a lot of times they looked to sympathetic Americans to do that kind of thing. But then you also have people who weren't necessarily directly involved in the conflict in Ireland that were like, dude, would you guys just fucking stop? You don't have skin in this game. Please do not send more guns over here. We don't need more guns. These are all things that I've come to understand and appreciate as I've grown up. But I also grew up with like one of my all-time favorite albums being the Wolf Tones, Rifles of the IRA. The IRA being the bad guys on any side of any conflict was a completely foreign idea to me for the brunt of my life. That is a really particular worldview to be coming at this history with, and I acknowledge that. But that being said, A lot of the shit that happens in this movie is shit that really happened. All these characters are fictional, so they didn't have to worry about, oh, well, is this what James Connolly said and did and where he was on such and such a day? But not only were the actions and the things that happen in the movie, things that did happen in real life, the conversations that were going on. I think this movie did a good job of distilling a lot of those ideas down, Because Ken Loach does have a severely leftist perspective in his filmmaking. And this is, if you don't know a lot of the history about it, it might seem out of place. But it isn't out of place here because there was a huge socialist sentiment that ran through a lot of the the Irish rebels.
3: As was very common in the 20s all across the globe. The 20s were the time of socialism.
0: And... It was strongly prevalent. Um, So it's not something that anybody should be surprised to hear these conversations being had back in the 1920s in Ireland among these people who are fighting the same enemy, but with different methods or end goals in mind.
3: Yes, there is a very pivotal scene about halfway through this film that I think will illustrate that when we get to it.
2: Yeah, I want to hear what Katie has to say. Let me just quickly respond to a couple of things that Liam said. One, in terms of trying to connect this to culture that I am familiar with, I will say, and I'll be very clear from the beginning, when you mentioned sort of like Irish-American versus Irish, Italian-American versus Italian, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of the different perspective here is the way the mafia can be viewed by Italian-Americans in the States versus in Italy. And this is not to make a comparison between the IRA and the mafia. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can romanticize something when it's very far away from you and buildings aren't blowing up in your neighborhood and you're not watching women and children die in your streets. I think that there's a detachment there and it's very easy to be idealistic. So using the mafia example, you know, The Godfather and a lot of other films like that really romanticize the idea of, especially the Italian-American mafia, where, you know, from a certain perspective, when you see corruption in the government and you see people getting rich through tax loopholes and whatever, there can be some political motivation to be like, okay, so the mafia kills some people, but they're mostly killing each other. They're finding ways to go around the government to make money. And so I don't see anything wrong with that. That's not my opinion, but there are people who have that opinion, right? And the classic sort of criminals and and organized crime helping out neighborhoods, right? Pablo Escobar built a bunch of schools and ingratiated himself to the people. The mafia did the same thing, right? You're handing out or, uh, you know, you watch American Gangster and he's handing it, handing out turkeys in the ghetto on Thanksgiving. Like these organizations have ways to ingratiate themselves with regular people so they can go about their business and make money. The difference is that, as I often use this analogy, especially in the 70s, 80s, 90s, in like New York, in the Italian American mafia, if some if they were putting a hit on someone, they walk into the restaurant, they shoot the person, and they walk out. Shocking and tragic, but there's not a that much collateral damage. In Sicily, they were like bombing the entire building, bombing freeways. It was way more of a terrorist organization where they did not give a shit about innocent blood spilt and innocent people. They were going to do what they were going to do for their means. And they didn't care who died. Again, I'm not drawing a direct parallel to the IRA, but I'm just trying to say that when there's an ocean in between and one side of the fight is a lot more idealistic, it's different from the people who are living that every day. So I imagine that it's got to be interesting to be a fly on the wall in an Irish family and to hear those conversations between Irish Americans and their Irish family they might still be connected with who's actually living these things these things day to day. You know, I've even posted about this film in other war film groups and I've seen those responses from uh, members who were British soldiers in Northern Ireland during the Troubles in the, what's that, the 70s and 80s? Is that right?
0: Yeah, it ended in the early 90s.
2: Right, so related conflict, a more contemporary version of it, but still a similar issue.
3: threads through.
2: Yeah, my point being that you can only moralize so much when you're outside of that bubble and you're outside of what's going on. And then secondly, I wanted to say that as long as you can acknowledge Ken Loach's background and his opinion and his perspective, there's nothing wrong with making a film that is a little more one-sided or is showing you one side of a conflict, I think the important lesson there is that you should not, say, watch this film and take all of your Irish history for of, about this conflict for those two years from this film. If you're interested, like I am, I'm going to read more about it and read some British perspectives and read about you know their side of the argument or their side of the fighting because I'm sure that there were civilians killed out of those families or losses that happened on the British side, right? Like nothing is ever one-sided. So I think it's okay to be showing a film, even if it's fictional, that is highlighting certain families and certain characters. It's just that as a viewer, I think you have a responsibility to inform yourself and be like, okay, great. I'm, I'm glad to have seen this side. Now I want to find out what else is going on.
3: So the thing about Ken Loach is Ken Loach is very British, very, very British, which would surprise you if you weren't familiar and Ken Loach works very closely with Paul Laverty who is who was born in India of one parent is Irish and one parent is Scottish so they have a very wide ranging perspective between the three of them about colonialism British imperialism in general and how that affects you depending on where you are in the class structure and i think that's the biggest thing that ken loach is known for is he is very much an agitator against the upper classes in britain and their inherent right to rule that is still kind of debated in britain to the to this day i think so i mean like he helped form a whole new party in london for elections like he is very involved in the politics of this And it was very interesting to watch him speak because I definitely got the sense that he wanted to illustrate the socialist aspect of this, which isn't something that I would guess is talked about quite as much because it's a lot more complicated. And socialists in general, especially of that era, are pretty easy to disavow what they were saying at the time. So I think that's what really drove him to this story, and because he explicitly stated in interviews that he was ashamed of how Britain has never acknowledged their atrocities and their role in this specific conflict. So he felt that it was a necessary thing to talk about, and that I think that was really the biggest reason why the British conservative press pushed back hard against the idea that they had anything to apologize for or make excuses or anything like that.
0: Yeah. It's really, you know, I, I can appreciate trying to to find as many perspectives as possible and really find like where that gray area in the middle is, but goddamn, the British did not make it easy to do on this one. <laughs> like it's, it's not the lack of, remorse that has been shown, the lack of accountability, even for things that aren't relevant to this film but happen in the future, is is pretty jaw-dropping. And as as Ken Loach said in his brief acceptance speech for the Palme d'Or, if we tell the truth about the past, maybe we can tell the truth about the present. So he was he was in no way shying away from the fact that Most of these struggles and conflicts mirror things that are still happening today and their conversations that are still happening today. This was made in 2006. That is not an accident.
3: No. And in the interviews I saw, he does make allusions. I didn't see him make any outright like one for one ratio statement type things, but he makes allusions to the current conflict, which in this during when this movie was released, would have been the Iraq War.
0: Well, Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Yes. Both, yeah.
3: Britain and the Irish participated in the Iraq War. I didn't think there was quite a big a presence in Afghanistan.
2: Uh, Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I imagine they participated uh, just as part of coalition forces, etc. I'm sure we have a listener who was involved, so they can probably call in and correct us. I also want to go back to this point that we brought up before, that there's a difference between... Sort of judging the morality of troops on the ground, a specific soldier, a specific unit, and the overarching politics of that entire government, that particular, you know, company in the army or that particular region. And so. It's difficult, right? Because we're talking about a huge picture here. Now, this is still when Britain was a huge colonial power, which diminished after World War II. Yes.
3: Yeah, this was the very, the last of the hurrahs for them, because everybody started to rise up after this.
0: Well, and they talk about that in the movie when they, they talk about how Ireland is a very small speck on their map, but... If they lose Ireland, then what does that mean for their colonies in India and in Africa? And-
3: it's the precedent. What precedent is this setting for the rest of their colonies?
2: right. And, and I mean, I think there's a there's a contemporary joke that I see going around the internet. but it's I think there's a lot of truth to it that if there are don't quote me on the numbers, but there if there are seventy plus countries out there, that all on separate dates celebrate their independence from your country. Saying you're the bad guy is maybe a little bit oversimplification. But when you're the colonial power and at one point you controlled 80% of the globe, there are going to be a lot of people that are pissed off at you. And in British history, a lot of that involved a lot of over-racism, right? Like often racism was the excuse as to why you were allowed to be in this country and tell these people what to do
3: and and Ireland Irish folks were considered a race right yes and it, they were a very different race of people identified by their hair their
2: skin tone oh and that spread to the US too right
3: it did yes it did but now now St. Patrick's Day like you don't you don't see that kind of discrimination anymore but you do still see it in England you still see anti-Irish discrimination in England.
2: Right. And in early 20th century immigration in the US, there was a whole hierarchy. Irish, Mm -hmm. Scottish, Polish, Italian. Those were all quote unquote white people.
0: I had a great grandmother that lied and said she was Scottish so she could get work as a cook. As opposed to
2: Irish? That's crazy.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, Irish were, they were so reviled for no reason. No reason in the same as all racism. It's but it's if you really look into it, which I won't go on too much of a tandem about this, but if you really look into it, the same kinds of tropes and stupid ideals that you hear levied against all kinds of races, it, it just all gets mixed around. And Irish people are usually just as very white as I am.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm the I'm the whitest. Like I'm in a dark room and I still feel like I'm getting sunburned right now. Like it's uh, bad.
3: Right? And I think that that's something that isn't really recognized by a lot of folks today, probably not the people who are listening to this podcast so much, but more, I would say, people who are younger than we are. Mm -hmm. I would say that there is very little awareness of that kind of prejudice and how deeply it affected Ireland and the UK for hundreds and hundreds of years.
2: And I think it is interesting to see, at least from an American perspective, to see a conflict that is you know, to simplify white people versus white people yet to see it perpetrated with a certain layer of, if not racial hatred, certainly class hatred. And you definitely see this emphasized in the scenes with the Lord and the officers and the, you know, the farmhand Mm -hmm. and to see this very like rich, well-to-do people versus this poor population that's getting abused. And Again, these are much bigger issues that we don't have time to really fully explore here, but that kind of explains the whole socialist angle as well. What other political movement is going to be important when really what's going on is rich people oppressing poor people? Of course, a movement that is about workers and farmers getting together and forming, you know, None of them own any land, but together, if they can form a government where things are socialized and spread out, we can have some power together and fight back against the suppression. Like again, whether you agree with socialism or not, like it makes sense that it would have risen throughout that period where that's what was going on, right?
0: Absolutely. You come in and you steal you steal all the land, you kill half the people, and then the half that are alive with absolutely nothing to sustain them, you then decide that. They just, they, they can't govern themselves. That sounds familiar.
3: Right, because there are two, let's see, let's see, what were the tropes that I most commonly saw when I was reading a lot of books about this? Lazy, drunk, and uneducated. And I was like, if, if you know anything about Irish folks, like, none of those, I mean, the drunk, maybe, but I'm, I'm from Minnesota. I'm from the Midwest. We have no place to talk
0: about drink, being a drunk. Part of the problem you. was they weren't allowed <laughs> to know how to read. Exactly. Like, you're not allowed to be educated, as so, though it's
2: their own fault. It sounds like every story you've ever heard about Black Americans, about Mexicans, about the Poles, Italians. I mean, same same story, different people. Right.
0: Yeah, it's like you're not allowed to vote. You're not allowed to own a weapon. You're not allowed to uh, not allowed to own anything worth more than five pounds. Right. But that's your fault for not being landed gentry. And this is the this is the area that we're coming into the movie on. Right. We're at the tail end of that.
3: Right. And I think this film has, so structure-wise, because I think that establishing the structure of this is pretty important in order to talk about how it sends its message and how it talks about its characters. Because there are long periods of battle scenes, drilling, people going from place to place dramatically. You know, the relationship between uh, Sinead and Damien and all of that stuff. That is, I love
0: that they were training with the with the hurling sticks.
3: Yes, I do, too. But it is meant to elicit emotions through the scenes that you're watching, rather than the dialogue. And then there are the very heavy dialogue scenes and some really brutal scenes that are kind of the set pieces of the film. Because there's a couple battles, but they're not... It's not Saving Private Ryan dramatic. The scene on the road where they kill those 18 men that's
2: based on uh, real events. Yeah, it's based on the Kill Michael ambush.
3: Yes. It's like 20 guys on the hill and 17 guys in the car, and they are doing deadly battle. So it's still very intense, but it's nothing as... It's not as dramatic because it doesn't have all these big explosions or anything like that. There's only one explosion in the whole movie that really mattered, at least, that I saw.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I find it interesting that I found myself complaining about the lack of realism in Gettysburg when it came to the blood and gore and lack of squibs and the fact that, you know, people are kind of like getting aimed at and shot at and they fall down dead. That actually happens a lot in this film and from a lot closer up. Yet, for some reason, this film feels realistic because, man, I don't know. I have a hard time even explaining this and I'm not trying to make excuses because I'm not trying to have a double standard between this and Gettysburg, for example, but the execution scenes, kind of everything. Almost bloodless. There's a little bit of blood in the film here and there.
3: There's two bloody scenes.
0: I think it might be the fact that this movie had a director and Gettysburg had like a dude who everybody was supposed to listen to.
3: So there's two scenes that are extremely bloody because I noticed the exact same thing. There's the scene in the very beginning, which I think is one of the obviously one of the biggest pivotal moments of the movie when um when mihal is executed for refusing to speak english Mm -hmm. to give his name Mm -hmm. when they show his body it is very bloody like when the black and tans come out of the chicken coop their hands are all bloody oh
0: man and
3: then there is the scene with sinead where they are Shearing her head.
2: Violently shearing her hair off. Yeah.
3: Just horrifically to the point where I was like, oh, no, she's not going to be able to grow hair on some parts of her head anymore. They like partially scalped her from how brutal it looks. And I, I was like, head wounds bleed a lot. It's probably OK.
0: Well, you're also forgetting uh, when they rip off Teddy's yes, fucking like fingernails. Like,
3: a more <laughs> like <laughs>
0: there's a few more <laughs> scenes than that.
3: But you don't see a lot of blood in that.
0: I don't know, man. You see them rip that shit right off. It's not close up but it's, it's real
3: dark whereas with her like her hair like her whole head is bloody she's freaking out it's in the daylight whereas when the torture happens it's very fast paced like you see it in these very brutal little bursts but then it will go to the men in the um, in the cell doing their singing and trying to cope with the listening to the torture and stuff
1: we go we
3: Not that it isn't brutal. I'm just saying it's not particularly gory.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Like there's no blood splattering across the screen when they rip his fingernails out.
0: Yeah. It's also, honestly, part of the sound design is what makes it work. (sighs)
3: So good.
0: It's like the teeth on the curb in American History X. Like you Uh hear the sound of the fingernails. You, You hear the sound of the fingernails coming out and you don't have to see it.
3: Mm, and his screams, his poor, poor, pathetic screams
0: well, also when they shoot the the officers in the bar, there's a a good amount of blood splatter on the walls there mm mm-hmm. shout like- out
3: to Robert Brazier, who is the sound effects editor for this, so
0: he- go Robert brazier
3: been heavily involved in this. And Julie Ankerson who was the Foley artist. Oh,
0: nice. Nice.
3: Well, I'm sure had to had to figure out what exactly does it sound like when you rip someone's fingernails out? Uh, probably oh.
0: sounds like uh <gasps> breaking a piece of celery? Like that really good crisp celery? Uh,
2: Maybe. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to throw up. We could talk about this for 20 more minutes, which we won't, but I don't know that I could pinpoint exactly why this feels so much more realistic. And and I'm not talking about scenes where you do see blood. I'm talking about the scenes where you really don't. Again, the two executions that we see from perpetrated by the IRA on the Lord and his farmhand. And yeah, it's just, yeah, some of the beating, some of the torture show blood, but there's something about the drama and the camera angles, the way it's blocked, the foley, just everything around it is done so well that you buy it and i think there's something and
0: and it's very rarely anonymous
3: it feels purposeful mm-hmm. in the very end scene where spoiler alert for those who haven't watched it where damien gets executed by a firing squad like there's no blood in that scene mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. there definitely would have been had we had they actually done it there's enough emotion on killian murphy's face right Right before it happens. And then we see his brother reacting to it and the guards around them, like reacting to his brothers crying and all of that. So it's it's not necessary, but.
0: Well, it's not just the the, I mean, it is the acting going on around it. Like it's it's sort of the whole package, but it's also particularly in that scene, the fucking horrifying way that he falls down. Mm -hmm. It's the follow through. Where, yeah. you you know what I mean? Like, it's they, a lot of these deaths are really sold on, like, how people are landing.
3: That's true. Like, with Chris in the beginning.
0: Yeah. Oh. And when Damien falls, he's still got his hands tied behind the pole. And so, he just sort of, like, drops down and is, like, leaning forward at this angle that had to be excruciating for Killian Murphy to hold.
3: Right. I can't believe he didn't dislocate his shoulder.
0: And then when he lets him, when he goes to untie him, and like the one hand doesn't get fully untied, so it just sort of like stays there and he slumps over to the ground. That fucking dude's dead. Anybody alive would complain about that.
2: I think you guys are onto something. I think it's a combination of the barrier between life and death. So, not this, again, old sort of. Cowboys shooting at people, falling down and screaming type thing, but this actual this person just went from being alive to being a completely limp, lifeless thing. I think that was sold really well. And then I think if I had to use another word to describe it, as I'm trying to put my finger on this, I think it's that everything in this movie is intimate, and I think Liam alluded to it when he said that all of its personal right none of it is impersonal you kind of
0: none of it is anonymous like very rarely is there somebody who dies before you get a sense of who they are apart from the apart from the battle and the ambush which is kind of like the biggest battle but even even then you do get a sense of who these people are who are doing the shooting
2: right because if you don't know who all died the people there do the the characters in the scene know who died and at the end they're taking tally and they're like oh we lost tommy and Mickey and whoever else right right
3: no in, the, in that scene they lose grogan who was the guy who let them out of jail oh, and saved all of their lives except for the poor that. three bastards who got executed right
2: yeah and that was another scene where i was like wow what a brave kid this kid's like barely 18 yet making a decision it. i'm not to- doing this commit treason against the British army and something he will surely be executed for if he's caught and yet be like, I'm part Irish. I can't, I can't let them do this to you.
0: You know, Yeah, know. my dad's from Donegal. Oof.
2: Yep. You can't, you
3: can't betray that.
2: Obviously this comes down to the screenwriting and the cinematography and all of that stuff. But I think that the violence in this film is all really intimate. And that, has precedence, I think, over even the accuracy of the blood and gore. Again, in Gettysburg, we talked about how the lack of gore makes it feel unrealistic. But in this, it's the intimacy that's cranked up to 11, where the cries of these people, you really feel them. And when Sinead is being tortured and her hair is being cut, and Damien's watching it happen, and he tries, he tries like five times. To break free and go do something i mean imagine imagine how frustrating that would be and he doesn't know i was waiting for a rape to happen i had no idea what was gonna happen
3: i know they're holding her down i was
2: like oh is he gonna have to watch his you know fiance, his love be raped in front of everyone and they're like we and it's not even that they didn't want to be killed or that they thought they were outnumbered they're literally like We don't have any ammo. We can't start Mm -hmm. this fight. We're not in a position to be fighting here. And just the
0: feeling. And you'll get the people. You'll get those people killed. too. Everyone's going to die.
2: Right. Her and her family. And
0: we're going to accomplish nothing. They'll kill Sinead. They'll kill her mom. (sighs) they like that. I fucking love that old Irish lady so much. I do too. She's like, I'm gonna go sleep in the chicken coop. What? They just burned your house down and cut my hair off. No, I'm gonna clean out the chicken coop and I'm gonna sleep there. I'm not leaving. I'm yep. just like, oh man, right in the feels. That is the most Irish shit I've ever heard in my life.
3: After cleaning it out, because that shit is very flammable, folks. Let me tell you, as someone who owns chickens. <laughs> I, I think the thing that I really liked about this movie that is so well done is how well thought out it is. The thing that really pushes Damien to join the IRA is watching the character who we come to know as Dan, who is the train driver.
0: Not do either of you guys watch Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, the Onion Knight. Yeah, it's, it's Davos Seaworth.
2: Yeah, Liam Cunningham.
3: I know that guy from other things because I didn't watch Game of Thrones and I have thoughts about it that I hopefully will never have to elucidate.
0: Absolutely, but he was lovely in it. I love his character great. in it. I love his character in the books, and I love him in this. He is fantastic.
3: Oh yes, he won a he won a best Irish award and maybe a BAFTA for this because nice. like, this wasn't this wasn't eligible for the Oscars because I since it was an Irish film, it probably would have had to have been like the UK's nomination for best foreign film, and that's yeah, not that's...
0: entirely true.
3: Well, uh, it, it's
2: mostly true. Are uh, we gonna have another Oscars fight?
3: No, we're not having another Oscars fight.
0: It's it's not necessarily an Oscars fight, but like at the time it was best foreign language film, first of all. And this isn't in a foreign language. And secondly, all sorts of shit is from England gets nominated for best picture all the time.
3: I agree. But I think this just wasn't it didn't get enough votes to get in. Within it the did nominations.
0: not. It did not. This got the Palme d'Or, the Cannes Film Festival and did not make a blip on the radar.
3: Which I'm sure the French just loved. Just loved. (sighs) Fuck you, English people. But I I think there's so many moments... Uh, Katie's
2: quoting the French. That's not our statement. We had danger
0: close. Love all British people and everybody. Liam and the French. (laughs) Together again.
3: There's these moments in the film (laughs) that manage to feel like two halves of a story, and they don't feel that way until that final moment. Like, for instance, when Damien executes... Chris Riley and because that kid
0: and Lord you know, Foggy Bottom,
3: I didn't give a shit about that guy. Fuck that guy. I
0: loved seeing him die. I mean, is that I, weird?
3: I was like, I'm clapping golf clap for how good he was. Did
0: that. He was almost the exact same character as uh, his character in V for Vendetta. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and fuck right that guy too. That? Oh he, he's a great fuck that guy. Yes. Right.
3: <laughs> you see, Killian Murphy go through this. This horrible moment. And it's not like the moment just happens. It is disgust between all the men. They get that message saying, execute the traitors and the spies. And, oh, well, that doesn't mean Chris. He's just a lad. Like, what? No, we're not doing that. And other people are like, "Mm, he knew what he did. He knew what he did. And as people who watched that kid get interrogated and they're threatening his mother and all that, oh, you really get to feel the weight it's on Killian Murphy because we don't find out until afterwards that how close the two were and how you know Chris's mother had fed him and they had hung out together a lot,
1: mm-hmm.
3: but just that moment of seeing this very vulnerable young man be manipulated and f- almost forced into giving up the information, and then we get to watch Killian Murphy go through the struggle of like, guess I'm gonna shoot you.
0: I love the. So a, a couple of things that I, that I enjoy about this just because of like their bleak Irish stoicism is like, oh do you God. have your letters? Yes. yes. Oh, I like, there's something about that. That's just like, oh, I love very much. Oh my God. And when,
2: and when it's Chris, right? Chris Riley. Yeah. Chris Riley. When Chris, I didn't know what to write. When Chris goes, no, I think he, didn't he say, I don't know how to write. And my mother doesn't know how to read.
0: He said, I wouldn't know what to write, and my mother doesn't know how to read. He's like, just tell her I love her, and tell her where I'm buried.
3: And that's what drives Killian Murphy to go, and as we learn when he relays the story, walk six hours to that kid's mom's house immediately after, shooting him and explain it to him, then walk six hours back. And With the
0: mother. She just says, take me to my son.
3: Yeah, who refuses to say anything to him except you know don't ever show me your face again and there's a you realize that for killian murphy's for for damien something has been lost he has committed to this cause in a way that's i'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say it's not healthy and and probably gonna hurt him in the future and then
0: there may be consequences for some of these things there may
3: be and then but here's here's the thing is it's not him who gave that order. It was his brother who gave that order. And you see a brief moment between him and his brother later where he's like, hey, you did that. Sorry. Ooh, that must have sucked. And then his brother, Teddy, is forced to not force, but he at least has enough dignity to give the the execution order for for Damien. That's just
0: the order like fucking counts him out.
3: And for me, at least, and maybe I'm maybe I'm the only one who saw it. It felt like there is a certain sense that Damien was driven to this through the influence of his older brother and that Teddy was more than willing to use him for whatever he could and then expect him to toe the line regardless, meaning, okay, now give up your fellow soldiers at the end. Now betray Everything that you've worked for. I
0: think the this is a conflict that you see in a lot of revolutionary settings.
3: Civil war settings in particular.
0: Yes, yeah, civil war settings, but not only that, but like the revolutionary settings where you have like the charismatic go-getter and the thinker. And the thinker is always going to overanalyze things. Like this is like the the uh Stalin Trotsky kind of dynamic right where it's like right. like that dude's not gonna he thinks too much like way too much and it's just not good for success so if he doesn't stop doing what he's doing somebody's gonna have to stop him from doing what he's doing that was the kind of dynamic that i was seeing there
2: yeah and i think the other thing that we're seeing that sort of solidifies by the end of the film. Is that to Teddy the end justifies the means, and he's the pragmatist between the two? He has his ideals, and he loves Ireland, and he wants the country to be free of, he wants it to be independent from the British. But when later the truce is signed, and Teddy supports it, and then and joins the Free State Army, that's when of course you see the biggest split between the two brothers and those factions. But Damien staying with the IRA is a matter of principle and idealism. Where he says no, right? Like th- what's going on behind the scenes is no concessions to the British. We want them off of our land and out of our country, and we want to be independent as a nation without ifs, ands, and buts. And that's the split that you see.
3: I would say that's that's half of the split because the the, the split between the
2: you know you're
3: capitulating to the British is one thing, but the beginning of the crack between the two of them is during the trial with the widow, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: where which
0: I fucking love that scene. That oh, judge that- was a boss.
3: Mm, I was like, "Girl, I'm, I'm clapping for you. You're amazing."
0: Like that whole court was just like all women, and I was like, and I nobody's know. like questioning them about. And
3: that that was a purposeful choice on the part of the writer. He said that he included that specifically because it was something that Ireland was trying to do at that time frame was bring women more into the public sphere Mm -hmm. or that small section of Ireland anyway. But there is that moment where... You see Teddy, like you said, Dan, go for the pragmatist. Like, well, I need this guy's money.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. I need
3: his money in order to pay for these
2: guns. Right? How are we going to fight this war without money? This person has money. He's buying our guns. Like, we can't just turn against him.
3: And are you really fighting a war? Like, what are you fighting for if you are willing to throw this widow under the bus in order to make this guy happy? Like, are we actually fighting for a change in society? Or... You know, what's the point here? That's the other disconnect between the Stalin and the Trotsky, the thinker, mm-hmm. who his socialist ideals and his desire for a more utopian government, as opposed to Teddy, who's like, man, I'm just trying to make something. I'm just trying to make some gains
2: here. Come on. Right. We want to improve the situation as much as we can. Right. And,
0: and, and what was the I, I can't remember off the top of my head, the piece of paper that Dan reads when they're debating whether or not to ratify the treaty.
2: I believe that that was the, basically the Irish Declaration of Independence. The nation's sovereignty extends not only to all the men and women of the nation, but to all
3: its material possessions, the nation's soil and all its resources, all the wealth and all the wealth-producing processes within the nation... That means all of us here and all of us in this country on every bit of this. Country.
0: It wasn't exactly because it w- there was a, a part in it where it said if the, the line that stuck out to me might have been him editorializing, mm-hmm. kind of summing up his point, or he might have been reading from the, the text. But the the line that he that he says is and it's this was him editorializing. This is not in the direct quote, but it says if we ratify this treaty All we're
3: changing is the accents of the powerful and the color of the flag.
0: Were you fighting to get the British out of Ireland? Or were you looking to replace them with something better? Or was it going to be a system that still, by and large, functioned the same?
3: Right. Meaning favors the rich at the expense of the poor.
0: Yes. Right. The quote that I thought encompassed
2: that was
1: So we'll paint the town Republican green, but underneath we're still the same as the English. Is that no, what you're we're saying? not the same we're as the English. It's better than painting it fucking red anyway.
2: Which again displays that pragmatism. It's like one side wants the killing to stop, even if that means having the British still in charge or having a puppet Irish government in charge. But if it can bring peace, they're okay with that for now. Versus the IRA side, which is absolutely like, what's the point of that? We need to get the British out of our country. I think there, there's several conversations like this that happen throughout the film, but that is where this schism is.
3: That's kind of the crux of it between the two mm-hmm. brothers, because they're very much on opposite sides, and their sides coalesce in the beginning of the film, but... Even from the beginning, they are fundamentally fighting for Irish independence for different reasons.
2: Yeah, and I find it interesting. I didn't think about this until we started talking about it, that Damien's initial willingness to stick to the plan and to the program and to listen to his brother results in him executing Chris Riley for giving people up. And then at the end of the film... He ends up being executed indirectly at the hands of his brother for refusing to give people up. He has sort of made that change into a more extreme form of idealism, and yet the end result is basically an an Irishman being killed you know like it just happened in that case he was sacrificing his life as opposed to sacrificing someone else's life but the end result was the same i don't know i I think that kind of paints a little bit of the futility of war and conflict in in general
0: there are a lot of similarities especially when it comes to teddy coming back to tell sinead that he's just had (sighs) damien killed oh my god that end scene jesus
2: Yeah. yeah and you're right i think there are a lot of parallels being drawn very specifically and on purpose. And I think we should talk about the scene, but the scene where Damien's being interrogated and he yells at the British Lieutenant, you know, he yells at the Lieutenant, get out of my country and Sinead's last words to Teddy are get off my land. And while she's wailing about Damien's death, you can see the burned out windows of her house and the destruction that's been wreaked upon her land. And you see the guilt on Teddy's face and man, what, I mean, what an ending
0: as he sadly wrestles with that fucking 200 year old kickstand on that ancient <laughs> ass motorcycle.
2: Was it really for the 1920s? That's probably a pretty new motorcycle.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it was, it was still pretty new. Look at it. It was like, it was probably cutting edge for Ireland in the 1920s, but like, just watch it. I was, fascinated by how that kickstand was working
3: me too i'm not gonna lie i was like what are you doing
0: and i don't i i feel bad for being distracted by that <laughs> anytime teddy was on screen i was always distracted by something usually it was his fucking fabulous trench coat like that man's leather trench coat is that's what i want my look to be forever it was so good the
3: the costume design in this is is very very fantastic i have to say
0: but yeah, no, that scene is great, and there are a couple of things that are said throughout the film that also like resonated with me, knowing a lot of the the future history that was to come.
2: Yeah, I feel like the tagline to this film could have been "Get off my land!" Exclamation point. Yeah.
0: It, well, and also like in the, <laughs> when you get into the troubles, that's when probably some of the most famous. When you think of the Irish hunger strikers, you think of H Block of the the prisoners who were demanding to be treated as political prisoners were in prison and went on hunger strike bobby sands the most famous of them but there's a a line in there at one point where it's like how are the hunger strikers doing it's like oh they're hanging in you know and i'm just like wow this is like there's a lot going on here and then when he's brought in to be interrogated by by the lieutenant and the first thing he says is, I demand to be treated like a political prisoner. These are, these are the kind of demands and the recognition that they had been making in this conflict from the beginning.
2: That scene is just incredible.
0: I don't know if this
2: is like what you guys always talk about Aaron Sorkin is trying to do, you know, with the sort of quick banter. But I just thought from a screen, if we want to talk cinema for a second from a screenwriting and of course the delivery of the actors, but really the writing of this dialogue could not have been done any better in my opinion, because I think it's realistic while illustrating the historicity of the moment and the history of the contemporary time that they're in while also Making you feel some sympathy for both sides, at least in that moment.
0: I felt bad for that dude. But the lieutenant as well, right? Yeah. I felt for like both of them. he's like, I don't have any answers for your questions. You're smarter than I am. Let me go get my boss to punch you in the face. <laughs> so this is
2: after Damien is first captured in the ambush and he's thrown in with the lieutenant who's unnamed, but the British Lieutenant is interrogating him, and they're trying to get his name.
1: What's your name? I'm, I'm a member of the Irish Republican Army, and I demand to be treated as a political prisoner. No, you're not. You're a murdering gangster who shoots young men in the back. No, you're wrong. I'm a Democrat. In the last election, Sinn Féin won 73 seats over a possible 105. Our mandate for an Irish Republic completely separate from Great Britain. A democratic decision. Listen, that is not my responsibility. I'm just a soldier sent by my government. Your government, which suppresses our parliament, which bans our paper, your presence here is a crime, a foreign occupation. You tell me what I'm supposed to do as a Democrat. Turn the other cheek for another 700 years. That, that is not my responsibility. Get out of my country. What is your name? Get out of my country. I'm not a book cutter. Show me your hands. Show me your, your fucking hands. hands. What are you do? What are you to do? Pull my fingernails off his head, which you fucking well expect. These men fought to this time! Up to their necks in vomit! In filthy trenches! While their friends got blown apart in front of their eyes! Sort him
0: out!
2: And then he leaves the room and sends in his henchmen to to beat
0: him up. He was his boss. It was his superior. it was the the other guy.
2: No, it was like a sergeant. I thought it was the guy who was like ripping out
0: the fingernails. Right.
2: But that guy's not in charge. The guy ripping out fingernails isn't an officer. He's like a sergeant. Yeah, yeah. No, the lieutenant's in charge of those guys, but he's had it trying to apply logic and reason. And he's like, you know, you sort him out, beat his ass, whatever. The back and forth there showed both the idealism and the frustration of both those characters. The line between realism and good dialogue was drawn really, really fairly there. I don't know what, I want to hear what you guys think from a cinematic perspective, but that's, that's my favorite scene in the film.
3: I would be willing to bet that the probable reality is of a lot of those British soldiers, especially the ones who were pulled after being in World War One, is like, why the fuck are we here? What are we even doing here? This isn't my problem. And there's a lot of rage and how dare you look at what britain has done to keep the world safe in world war one type attitude going on here and there's a lot of complete lack of understanding for or or grace or forgiveness for either side and therefore him telling damien that means nothing okay good for you i've watched you know Horrible things happen to people I love perpetrated entirely by your people. That, I think, is one of the strongest scenes in the film because it acknowledges what the British soldiers were bringing over to this, which does not excuse their terrible behavior in any way, shape or form, but it provides a better window into what was going on gives us a wider perspective i think
2: and i forgot to mention earlier in terms of authenticity and realism that all but two of the irish actors in this film are not just irish but from county cork so from the actual area that is depicted which i'm assuming an irishman can actually hear the difference in their accents the way you can in britain and other places in europe yes and then all of the British soldiers are played by ex-British army soldiers. They were told not to overplay it, but act as they would if searching or interrogating insurgents. And man, I don't think I read that before I saw the scenes, but there was just something about it that made me think so much about US involvement in Afghanistan and, and sort of the rage of civilians having their houses destroyed, especially with the recent drone strike that we had in Kabul that, you know, annihilated an entire extended family. And it just, there's a place, there's a place for the intensity. And the, again, I think it comes back to the intimacy with which these characters, these actors portray the characters. And I think you feel the military bearing of a lot of the actors playing the soldiers And you feel the response of these civilians. And it is just, it's very visceral, the whole
0: thing. Well, and that's Ken Loach. I'm not exceedingly familiar with with Ken Loach's considerable body of work over a a period of time. He got started early and then kind of just disappeared and then had this big resurgence in the 90s. But- he's from what I, from what I can tell, he's always been much more concerned with making movies about people that nobody wants to make movies about factory workers or just bums on the street or just like the, what one might consider the rabble. Those are the stories that he likes to tell, which is interesting that like, people as big as Eamon De Valera and in particular Michael Collins only show up as newsreel footage in this movie is not a mistake. That's like Ken Loach's thing to focus on the farmers, to focus on like a small subsection of this larger conflict that's just between these two brothers and deal with those kind of, he's, he's a much more intimate filmmaker handling what could be a big sweeping narrative in the hands of like a Ridley Scott.
3: Right. Well, he is the only, or he's not the only, he's one of the few filmmakers to win uh, the Palme d'Or twice once for this, which was his first one. And then once 10 years later, or twice 10 years later for I, Daniel Blake, which is a story about, I believe they're Irish, um, an Irishman who has a heart attack. And so he can't work. He's like a factory worker or something. And so he can't work anymore. But in order to collect his dole, the government is like, well, you still have to keep looking for work. You're not disabled enough. And it's about his journey to try to get that recognized and his relationships and a bunch of other stuff. But he is very interested in exploring the small stories, because I think he understands that a lot of times... The small stories are what is going to interest people because we can recognize those small stories when we're talking about something like the king's speech. It's pretty hard to empathize with that guy, the guy who is um, teaching him, you know, how to not stutter and all of this stuff. Like, not that stuttering isn't something that really affects your life.
0: Full confession, I kind of love The King's Speech, but...
3: I'm, I'm not against The King's Speech. I'm just saying <laughs> like that it, it is not a film... It's not a film that touches people in the same kind of way that this does, although it tries to, but because it focuses on people in such rarefied circles and people with such an insane amount of privilege, it is not going to reach everyone in the same way as something like this will, where it's, this is just... A, Guy trying to live his life. He's trying to be a doctor. His brother is a soldier. You know, they come from farmer stock. Ken Loach, I think, tries to grip people within reality. And I think that's one of his strongest points as a director. So we've talked about the fact that Ken Loach is very political. And I think it's important for us to mention that Ken Loach has had a lot of political controversy in his career. You know, he was a big part of the labor movement for a long time. And He has some very specific opinions about Palestine and Israel, and that has resulted in some very specific reactions from various groups. And we are not here to talk about that today. Maybe in the future, we'll talk about Israel and Palestine. But we did just want to acknowledge that he can be a controversial figure because of his beliefs and statements and all of that.
2: Yeah, not not a neutral bystander.
3: No, no, not at all. Not at all. And Ken Loach would say the same thing himself. Right. Even in in the interviews I watched with him about this. But I think it's important to talk about this movie regardless because I think in this Ken Loach really does have some nuanced things to say about about Ireland and Britain and the civil war and all of that that's going on. So regardless of how you may feel about him personally, we felt it was important to discuss his film because we think it's a really great opportunity to talk about those particular aspects of British and Irish history.
0: So now it's time for the breakdown, the point in the show when we discuss what was the objective of the film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie? Tell me what you thought about this movie. Hmm. Excellent, Dan.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think the objective with this one is fairly obvious. I think Ken Loach is really trying to give a different perspective on, you know, the Irish War for Independence, on Irish Civil War in particular, on what it was like to be just an average person experiencing British rule and really dig into those conflicts. and he explores them in a way that's that should feel trite almost because he uses the um which i don't know for all of you who've seen north and south or any any of those kinds of films where i mean north and south isn't exactly a brother against brother but it's very much meant to feel that way a brother on one side of the conflict and a brother on the other side and what it is like when your ideals outweigh your obligation to family and what it is like when your ideals are so driving your actions that you are willing to hurt yourself or others in order to fulfill them and did he succeed for me he did For me, this movie works really great. And we didn't get a whole lot of chance to talk about the acting in this. So here is my moment to say that Killian Murphy is perfection in this role, both emotionally, acting wise, his facial expressions, his physicality, everything about him is so great. And he is he's very
2: sexy in this film. Oh, <laughs> despite his role,
0: Dan, don't act like you didn't notice how sexy he was.
2: Well, as a as a side note, I'll throw in it's one of the things that always throws me off about Inception. And I don't give a fuck about people's height. I'm Italian. I'm lucky to be five ten. Like I'm tall for an Italian. My dad's five seven. You know, like we don't have those big old oh big really? Old jeans I mean, Italians. Are short. The Italians, yeah, they're not they they're not Germans or Scandinavians or anything. But in Inception, you can really see how short Killian Murphy is. I'm pretty sure he's got to be like five, six, because when he stands up next to a cab, his head like barely clears the cab. And in this, he looks super tall. Well, In this, he just looks normal. Like the rest of the Irish folks around him seem to be of similar proportion. So he's like, he looks like a normal sized dude. But for like an American, I think Killian Murphy's compared to an average American, he's pretty small.
3: And on the other side of this, you have Padraig Delaney, who plays his brother Teddy, who is earnest and stolid and forthright. And he is obviously so invested in making something better through a pragmatist viewpoint that it seems easy for him to lose sight of what is this costing? How far are you willing to go to achieve your dream of Irish independence. And does this really qualify as Irish independence? And my favorite performance in this, other than Killian Murphy, is definitely Orla Fitzgerald as Sinead. She's not a huge role, but every scene she's in makes a huge impact. She is Killian Murphy's love interest and an informer who brings the IRA information. And she is portrayed as just as brave, just as invested, and just as uh, dedicated to achieving Irish independence. And I really, really enjoyed that part. For me, the film really hits its objective. And I was really pleased to see that because this is such a complicated story. And I watched this twice. And the first time I was like, I don't really understand what's going on here. I mean, I get it in the scene to scene moment, but I didn't have any historical background. So then I went and read a bunch of historical background and then watched the movie again and was like, oh, OK, I see what's going on here. So I also, after the fact, liked that Ken Loach is not he does not hold any hands. He's like, I'm here to tell this specific story and either you get on board or you get the fuck out. And I. Can always appreciate that in the director. So I really liked this film. I'll probably watch it again. And I think even more than that, it interested me in this particular time period, which is not hard to do. I'm I'm like a squirrel in regards to war history. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. I'm going to read three books about it. So I think this is going to be my new like, all right, let's read three or four books about the Irish War for Independence. So I really liked it, and, you know, if we get a chance to cover more of this, I'm really excited to talk about it. Dan?
2: I touched on a few of these things during the conversation, but I think that Ken Loach's objective here was to tell an intimate story about lower-class conflict during the 1920s Irish War for Independence and... A little bit sort of bleeding into the beginnings of the Irish Civil War. Do I think it was on target? Yes. And while I elucidated some of this during the episode, I'll, I'll restate that I think the reason is that he really focused on making an intimate portrayal about specific people. Despite the fact that these are fictional characters, again, it's, the lens is really zoomed in on this conflict. Everything is... No more than 30 people at a time inside a house, inside a cell, inside a corridor, and everything that you see is up close. And I'd probably be mentioning this even if it hadn't been our last episode, but I really find a direct comparison between the way this was produced and Gettysburg. Now, granted, they have different scopes, and I understand the grand scale of Gettysburg, but I think when we complained a bit about the fact that Gettysburg never focused on a particular unit enough or a particular family enough to allow us to really feel some of the drama and the trauma of those particular characters. I think this does the opposite. You don't get this overarching bird's eye view of this war. You never really see politicians or you know people in parliament arguing other than in the small local politics of of these irish towns and so that really allows you to feel what the characters are feeling and get really intimate with them again it's a word i've used many times during this but i think that was the number one strength of this film and it worked so well that again some of the lack of blood even in some of the scenes didn't throw me off because everything felt so real and i really felt what these characters were feeling. Like Katie said, the acting was never over the top, by the way, that entire scene that we played a clip from, it's not even overacted. It's just that it's so well written that you really feel what that lieutenant is saying to Damien And you can understand where he's coming from, and you understand where Damien is coming from about the people who have died in this conflict so far, the fact that his land is being occupied, that what do you want us to do, just lay down and take it? I mean, it it just all feels very real. And that, I think, is one of the biggest successes of this film. I'm, yeah, not at all going to hide or deny Ken Loach's biases or the fact that he's really, you know, the British are the bad guys in this film. And he's really painting a picture of what these Irish families went through. And I want to be really clear that, you know, to some of our listeners from the UK who may have even served in the military in Northern Ireland later, you know, obviously in the indirect results of these conflicts later on in the 20th century, I think that this film juxtaposes well the difference between government- Political, big picture ideals, and what the actual people who have to fight in that war have to suffer through. What you see from these men who went through the Somme are people who, in modern parlance, would be going through a lot of PTSD from this event. I mean, they, one of those initial scenes where they go, where they take Mikhail into the chicken coop and bayonet him to death most likely and they have blood all over their hands a lesser filmmaker would have made a bigger deal out of it and 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 put it more in the forefront but it happens he's killed off camera and then these black and tan troopers go form up kind of on the far end of the camera on the road it's like a, a long distance shot and even though you're looking at them from behind and to the right of them you can see that their hands are bloody even from that distance and i i'm sure that was intentional and i really appreciated the subtlety with which that particular shot displayed that and i think that's another microcosm and another good example of how these intimate scenes really describe the entire conflict and make you really feel what these people were going through and the rage and the anguish and the frustration that they must have been going through. So, you know, the movie is a bit one-sided, but I think it's meant to be because he's trying to tell the Irish story in this film. And that doesn't even mean that all Irish people have the same opinion and that that they would necessarily side with people who were bombing buildings or shooting soldiers or whatever. I think that uh, you can start a conversation online and see that there are... Irish people who disagree about that, especially in modern times. So I'm not trying to make a monolith out of anyone. But I really, really love this film. I'm glad that it made it through our runoff poll. And yeah, I'll definitely watch it again. Jackie hasn't seen it. I want to show it to her because there was something, again, extremely intimate about this portrayal that made it a very passionate film and something that I really felt deep within
0: me the the movie gets its title from an old irish ballad um that was written by the poet robert dwyer joyce called the wind that shakes the barley and i was reading about it and it it gets its name and the whole idea of the barley is that around the time of the united irishmen in 1798 around the time of wolf tone's uprising the rebels would often travel with pockets full of, like, barley and grain to feed themselves. But it was also usually on them when they died. And so there are these crappie holes or mass unmarked graves where their bodies would be thrown. And barley would end up growing up in these strange patches Whoa. marking the graves. Wow is where the poem gets its title, and then the movie gets its title from this poem.
2: I did not know that. Wow.
0: Yes. The woman at Mihal's funeral, the woman who's singing, is singing the ballad. Mm. So, I think the objective that Ken Loach was going for in this was multifold. He was trying to make a good realistic depiction of these wars in history because prior to this i think the best we got was the film michael collins which i enjoy i like it a lot could do with like 100% less julia roberts in it
3: <laughs> is she in that oh she
0: is God. in that it's it's kind of like the uh, the cameron diaz in gangs of new york problem
3: Oh, not good,
0: no, not good, but the other thing is is that it Michael Collins doesn't have like enough politics in it, and also doesn't really give a whole lot of indication as to why the Irish are rebelling, so if possible, it gives even less backstory than than this movie does. This movie is very short on exposition but fills in a lot of that throughout very very well and that's one of the things that i liked about the writing is you don't always know what's going on in the beginning but you find out very quickly what the conditions are and why these people are doing the things that they're doing i also think because it is ken loach and the time that it was made i think that he was making this maybe not as a parable but again uh, you know i've talked about in The Kingdom of Heaven episode historicization, where you take a past conflict and you just depict that, but in a light that also can very easily mirror current events. Uh, I think that was very much his objective. And I also think that he just wanted to tell a really good, compelling story about these people. And I think on all of those objectives, I think he hit the mark marvelously well. It is a really, really well done film. If you have even the slightest bit of trouble understanding accents, like just across the board. Go ahead and throw the subtitles on for the beginning, in particular. Like until my ear gets used to it, it's very difficult to tell. Like when it opens up with the hurling practice.
2: Oh, I was a hundred percent subtitles from the from the get go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh man, yeah, it, yeah like it. Definitely. It can be very difficult to understand what they're saying at first until because these are some authentic ass Cork accents.
2: That's where they're from, right?
0: Yep, it is a specific brogue, and the The cadence is not entirely unfamiliar to me because my great grandparents came from from Cork, so my grandparents kind of talked like that. my My grandfather's folks came from uh, from Timlea in Cork. Ah so <laughs> ha Tim I know it well.
3: I've heard of it actually.
0: <laughs> yeah, my grandmother's people came from Tormcady in County Mayo. and I have it on good authority from an Irish friend of mine that fucking nobody knows where Tormacady is even the people who live there. But yeah, so don't feel bad if you don't understand them in the beginning and don't let that stop you from watching the rest of this movie because it's a really good movie and some of the performances are absolutely compelling and it's one of those films where everybody is kind of showing up to work. All of the little background characters are all very distinct people, even if it's just a soldier who's going to come on the screen and then get shot in the head in 5 minutes you get a distinct impression of who that person is, where they were before they came on screen, and what's going to happen to them afterwards. It's, it's hard to find a better made film than this. It's still like, I know Katie said it was a bit of a surprise, this winning the Palme d'Or, and it is because it does not feel like your typical con Film Festival fare. It doesn't feel particularly artful. It doesn't feel overly high-minded. But like, if you pay attention to a lot of these details, it's really pretty compelling. And did I like it? I love this movie. I knew it, but I'm not one hundred percent sure I like it. The what?
3: I didn't know it.
0: If that makes any if, if that makes any sense. <laughs> It is not an enjoyable watch for me. I've seen this before, and I have it. I don't know why this movie, like, this movie is a major award winner. It has a very good reputation. It is excellently executed, brilliantly acted, brilliantly written. You can't find this movie in high def. No. It's not on Blu-ray. It's not streaming on high def. You can't get this movie on high def for love or money. Like, nobody gives a fuck about this movie. And more people should give a fuck about this movie. And I don't know why they don't. I have it on DVD. I bought it when it came out on DVD. And I don't know why I haven't been able to upgrade this to like Blu-ray or 4K. But it's one that I come back to about every 10 years, whether I need it or not. Like it's one that I should, like I have it so that I can watch it when I need to watch it. Mm -hmm. But it's not one that I consistently go back to. It's not fun for me. But I love it. So to give
2: you listeners another little behind-the-scenes moment that we do from time to time here, we thought for a while about how we wanted to approach the four films in between listener episodes, right? Every fifth we do a listener episode, you guys vote. This came very close to, in fact, tied with the Thin Red Line and then in a runoff ended up winning. And so we decided that every third group of films, we will do some kind of themed series. We did World War II through the eyes of a child, and now it's time for our next series. And what we decided is that we're going to do a series on revolutions and rebellions. So coincidentally, this film was picked as the listener episode, which is nice because it leads us right into our series on revolutions and rebellions. And we had a list of So many. 10, 12 films that we looked through, we tried to balance out, again, contemporary versus older, combat or not, and also what revolution or what theater it was depicting. So, to start us off, or to continue this series, rather, what are we doing next, Liam?
0: Okay. Our next film could not possibly be fucking further from The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Okay, no, there are a lot of parallels to be made. (laughs) The British are the bad guys- (laughs) As per usual, it deals with revolution and then also the messy aftermath of success. But, but those are like the only two things that this has in common with when that shakes the barley. We are doing the 2020 filmed release of the musical Hamilton. We either just got a lot of new follows or we lost a lot of follows But some activity happened as soon as you heard that. (laughs) I, for one.
3: People are screaming or squealing. And those are two very different different reactions.
0: reactions. No, I'm looking forward to this one. I think it's going to be a fun opportunity to talk about a a type of performance and a type of storytelling that we are not really going to get another opportunity to talk about. It is about the American Revolution. And yeah, it's something that's that's. Struck a chord with a lot of very vast amount of the population, but has also kind of lost its shine since it came out. So there'll be a lot of good stuff to talk about with this. uh, And I'm really looking forward to the discussion.
3: I'm excited. It's
0: on Disney Plus. It is streaming on Disney Plus. That's the only place you can watch it. So if you don't have Disney Plus, get it or borrow your friend's password. Don't do that.
3: Yeah, if you don't have it. Do, the, do the, the, the temporary thing. And yeah, there's like a trial a
0: period, or whatever, right? five
3: days or whatever. I am excited to watch this because I'm really into musicals lately. And this last weekend, I watched back-to-back Cats. <laughs> and Cats, the movie <laughs> that came out Spit take the The
0: recently. movie that was so bad it made Andrew Lloyd Webber buy a dog. The movie that has a butthole version and a
2: non-butthole version.
3: And the Billy Elliot's stage play. So there's a filming of okay. the stage play. I have not seen Hamilton. I tried desperately to get tickets when it was in my city and no, no dice. It was
2: very popular. I also think I represent a good swath of our listenership in that I am not someone who has seen nor enjoys very many musicals, and I have not seen Hamilton. But this is a first for us. And I think that being so popular, and I I know it's good. It's a good opportunity for people like us to sit down and actually watch a musical. And we're here with a theater director as well. So this is our beer, our first actual non accidental no theater like actual theater production. So that's good.
3: <laughs> Dan said he he's not into musicals, and Liam and I's faces both just
2: turned to it immediate. Doesn't judge mean face. I'm not willing to watch them and How try. Dare you? I'm just sorry.
3: It's, it's fine. It's fine. We'll convert That's you. Fine.
0: I don't need anybody to like musicals. I mean, because I understand a lot of them suck and they're stupid. I mean, but they're like
3: missing but, out. Eh. They're missing out, though. The good ones are so amazing.
2: Maybe this is your first time listening to Danger Close, a war film podcast welcome to the show. We have been doing a little bit of advertising on Facebook and kind of trying to do a little marketing for the show. So we have had an influx of new listeners and new people coming into the podcast discussion group. So if you're coming into the group...
0: So welcome, everybody.
2: Yeah, welcome to everyone. Hello. We're excited to talk to you guys. We're looking forward to hearing your film recommendations and your reviews of our podcast. If you listen to a few episodes and you like what we do, we do have a Patreon, which you can look up on patreon.com forward slash danger close, or you can just go to our website, www.dangerclosepod.com forward slash support is where our Patreon page is. You'll also find our blog where we put all the historical research that we do for each episode. If you are interested in reading more about the history behind the scenes of the episodes, And on our Patreon, we offer you an extra episode every month of a war-adjacent, some kind of sci-fi war on something. We try and describe each film. There's the
0: ongoing war on
2: Liam. There is. We're slowly building up a repertoire. We are on six or seven films in there by the time this comes out, including Terminator 1, Terminator 2, Independence Day... Lots of fun stuff. If you want a taste of it, you can listen to our our Starship Troopers episode with Paul Salmon. We released that one for free so that everyone can kind of give it a listen. It's only four bucks a month. Come on board if you want to support the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Slán fall.
1: I was born on the Dublin street where the Lyle runs the beat. And those loving English feet, they walked all over us. When me doll would come home fight, He'd invite the neighbours out with this chorus Come out you black and tans Come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders Tell her how the IRA Made you run like hell away From the green and lovely lanes of Killa Let us hear you tell How you slandered great Parnell When you thought him well And truly persecuted Where are the sneers and jeers That you loudly let us hear When our leaders of sixteen Were executed Come out you blackened hands Come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders Tell her how the you're on Lake Hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Gilles.